Hi there, and welcome to the inaugural Alliance Academy broadcast, brought to you by Alliance Advisors. I'm Brendan Henry, the Senior Vice President for Asia-Pacific Operations here at Alliance. I'm speaking to Philip Fu, the Lead Analyst for Australia at Glassmoose. And in this episode, we explore some of the topics we expect to be at the forefront of proxy advisors and investors' minds as we enter the ATM season here in Australia, as well as some global trends impacting outcomes across markets. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Phil. Hi, Brendan. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. No problem at all. So you guys are gearing up for a really busy season next few months and lead up to Christmas, really, with the the banks in, in December. So what does the next few months look like for you? Can you give us an idea of how many reports you expect to publish? So it's going to be pretty busy. We are looking at probably about 550 to 600 reports in this next few months. That does cover the ASX listed and the NZX listed stocks, though. But we're we're talking 500 plus for the for the ASX alone. Now, really, in that ASX NZX coverage, we cover about 750 or so annually. There's always fluctuations for for our client holdings changing, and or, or the number of EGMs that pop up, but. Out of that 750, I would suggest that 80% are going to fall between September and November. So this is where we really get our hands dirty. Wow, that is an incredible number. I always thought I could do be a proxy advisor, but now that number scares the life out of me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure you could. The, 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 way, the way we divvy it up here at Glass Lewis is that we've got six full-time analysts who are known as Australian analysts or Australia and New Zealand analysts. Between us, we have a coverage list where we've divided up the NZX 15 and the ASX 300 into coverage lists. But perhaps I'll just stick with the Australian companies. So broadly speaking, an analyst would have 50 or so companies that they're covering. And then, as I said before, 20% 20% of those are falling in, in the December year in category. So, so uh, done and dusted for, for FY22 anyway. So we're really looking at probably about 40 or so of the ASX 200 a- approaching. Now, I, I actually gave a larger number than the 300 because, of course, there's micro caps coverage in there. There's EGM coverage. But we will we'll get some analysts who cover other markets generally rotating in to help us out with those smaller level of coverage rather than the kind of dedicated analyst coverage list approach we have for the ASX 300 and the NZX 15. We do have our approach to, to try and cut it up, divide it amongst the team. We will have some staff helping us with collecting data and whatnot. So the, 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 the analysts with their coverage list can really delve into to the Telstras, the Commonwealth Banks, the 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 Qantases of the world as well. Fantastic. And no matter what way you divide that number, though, that's still a significant workload for the next few weeks. How do you survive, aside from in caffeine or, you know, when do you find time to sleep? <laughs> you know, we, 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 we kind of chart out amongst the team how what hours we're expecting to put in. And, and it doesn't get, it gets busy, but it doesn't get insane. It's a bit. It's a ten or nine or ten week period that we have to run the marathon for, so it, it's not a sprint. And uh, at the height, probably there's five or so weeks where I think we'll be working sixty hours a week. It might go slightly above that, but really, while that gets pretty tiring towards the end of the busy season, no one's missing out on sleep. We'll, we'll, we'll also abandon, right now we're working from the office two days a week, but from next week and then for the following six or seven weeks or so or however long the season actually ends up going we'll just work from home so 
it'll just be heads in books apart from where we get together on virtual meetings and whatnot to talk out any issues among ourselves. Fantastic. I want to get in, we'll get into the actual nuts and bolts of what you expect to encounter in the AGM season. Obviously, you know, every company will have a remuneration report, all the Australian companies, the New Zealand companies obviously aren't required to put one up, although has been suggested it would be a good step forward for some of those companies to put it up as as an advisory resolution. From a remuneration perspective, what are the common themes you're expecting to see this year? We all know there's a very, and it was mentioned, you guys mentioned in your webinar recently, there's a really tight labour market. How do you expect that, see that translated into A, outcomes? And is there any changes to structures that you think are, are going to be happening, you know, in terms of retention awards and LTI and things like that? So based on the engagements that we've been having with boards, which we've just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago as we've turned into season, we are expecting, you know, that, that tight labour market retention, competition for talent was a theme. We've heard some instances where there will be retention awards. We've heard some instances where there will be increases to the fixed pay of executives. Often there's a commentary around retention in the tight labor market when that happens as well. But we're also seeing a few instances where boards are using discretion over the STI outcomes or LTI outcomes, all in the name of addressing that tight labor market. So look, I think that is something that's going to play out this year. Some of it's a little bit of an overlap from the past couple of years where COVID put in some some salary freezes in some cases, though it's not entirely a new concept given last year, some executives, some boards were already getting a little tired of COVID and and there were a few retention awards that had escaped into 2021. So we'll be, we're expecting the same issues. We're we're expecting shareholders to, you know, approach them on a case-by-case basis as they have previously Really, the way we're going to look at it is we're going to be just trying to take a view on on whether the awards truly are stru- well a structured, but b have the purpose of of dealing with the retention problem versus b if if we have some skepticism that the remuneration committee just tends to tre- treat its executives a little bit excessively anyway, we might take the view that these awards are just a little bit more generosity towards executives, that, which, which isn't really in the interest of shareholders. So we'll, we'll be dividing the issue in that in so that way. When you're looking back at that, did you look at past history from that either remuneration committee or the chair of the remuneration committee and what they've done previously? So if they've exercised just downward discretion in those years or required, to, does that build a bit of trust? It definitely does. So yeah, if, if we can see that LTIs haven't been vesting for, for years on end, and then we see the board suggest that they, the LTI is not working as a retention element and, and they try to do something new. We'll, we'll look at that in, in the context that's given to us, which quite likely that there is probably an issue with the LTI in terms of its retention effect versus if another company has is, is always been paying its executives a good STI, LTIs have been vesting, but aren't going to this year. And then the board all of a sudden jumps in with retention risk, looking to, to top up. Then we're going to take a little bit of a more skeptical view it's sort of looking at that when we look at lti and you know possibly it's not worked for a while and that's something that i wanted to i'll probably explore with, uh, with a few other views from the people i'll be speaking to subsequently you know from asset owner perspectives and things like that do you feel that covid that period was almost a missed opportunity for a lot of companies to write the remuneration structures for the company that they are and the way that you know maybe that lti worked 
invested during the good times, but didn't work, you know, for that retention, maybe possibly in downturns. Whereas in COVID, they could have gone through, a, you know, an exercise of maybe coming up with a structure that worked specifically for their company or their sector. It's something that, you know, I find interesting that, you know, that sort of period, things didn't vest, but there wasn't really a lot of change to structure or expectations in the market around structures coming back. That's an interesting question. You're right. I, I didn't see much. Well, I mean, there's remuneration changes happening to the structures all the time, but I didn't yeah. see many really being pushed along by COVID. In terms of, do I think it's a missed opportunity? It, it, you could be right. The, the other side to this is, you know, if we, if proxy advisors and investors are skeptical about a remuneration committee, and they're not always, but sometimes they are, and if the remuneration committee seeks to change its remuneration structure, the moment the remuneration structure stops paying out, there can be a little bit of pushback there as well. So, you know, in some ways that might be overplayed. Perhaps boards wouldn't have quite had the the mandate to make as many changes as they would, at least not in year one of COVID anyway. No, it's something that's been playing on my mind for a while now. I just wanted to get your view on it. In terms of non-financials and ESG, does Glass Lewis or, you know, have a firm idea on how, how to incorporate non-financials? You know, should there be a financial gateway to a non-financial measure? You know, all these different questions around what it should look like, and especially ESG. Obviously, it's climate change is the defining, I suppose, issue of our, our time. And therefore, should it be, in effect, part of your day job? Should it be a separate reward for something that should be happening anyway? Or would the financials play out by themselves if you are incorporating ESG into your everyday role? It's kind of a debate that we've been hearing about the place. Not that sympathetic to the day job argument, to be honest. When I look at the title CEO, I expect everything to be in that day job. I don't really agree with some things following in the day job versus out and and that being a split for, for what should be fixed pay and then what should be bonus, to be honest. I think if a CEO is doing a poor day job, then they should not get a bonus. And I think if they're doing a great day job, better than anyone else, then their, their, their LTI should be vesting, their SDI should be paying out as well. On ESG measures or non-financial measures, we used to be quite prescriptive. We, we used to say that we were expecting 50% or more financial measures, and that was sort of a, a boundary and would be quite critical for, for non-financial measures, citing that there's issues for them to be objectively measured versus financial measures where you've got uh, an earnings number that's audited each year or a share price number, which is just set by the market. We've had to soften that quite a lot. In in the last couple of years, there's been a significant amount of interest around the non-financial ESG measures. Look, and I think there's a lot of innovation happening there, but I don't think we can be quite as strong on where we see a line as, as to what's appropriate for each company at the moment. Now, the, the, the non-financial measures and the ESG measures, from our clients' perspective, the clients are really either hot or cold on these measures, I'm finding. So there's not even a lot of consensus around, around the investors on, on what they want to see here. So as a result, we're, we're, we're open to a good amount of innovation by boards, but we're going to be looking for justification, explanation of, of what the board's doing. In, in terms of what I think would be a good middle ground, look, I think you probably want to keep the financial measures in there at a material weight. If you want to introduce non-financial measures in an equally material weight, that probably makes that's probably acceptable in, in this day and age. But you probably 
capably looking for your ESG measures if they're materially weighted to be broad issues or really strategically significant issues. I wouldn't be looking for anything that was a particularly narrow issue where you know the, the company could conceivably hit those narrow issues, but perhaps does not deliver a, a, a positive shareholder outcome. So that might be, it would be inappropriate for a bank to have a target to reduce its fossil fuel portfolio from already what I understand are immaterial numbers to, to zero. I couldn't see why that would fit in an LTI, but in terms of AGL, Origin, an energy company, an oil and gas company, a miner, where they really do need to reposition themselves for the energy transition, if they could fit in some broad strategic target relating to how they're going to position themselves, and it might look like a decarbonization metric, or it might be something a little bit more bespoke, then, then I think that is a bit broader and something that more supportable. In, in terms of the financial gateways or the non-financial gateways, I, I think they're very positive. I, I, I would, I'd, I'd love to see financial gateways over, over non-financial measures and non-financial gateways over, over financial measures. Obviously, the board's going to have to negotiate with their executives to get there. If it's just coming across that the risk of non-vesting increases, but look, I, I think that's the appropriate way to do it. I think that's probably what's in the interest of, of shareholders. So I, I hope they're successful with those negotiations. That's a really interesting view. I suppose, were those non-financial measures, you're obviously still looking to be able to measure them in terms of disclosure upfront or, you know, in ter- at vesting, you know, what's, what are you looking for? So someone's introduced, these are the measures. Are you going to say, well, you know, that looks a little, a little weak to me? or and go against a, possibly an LTI resolution? Or do you look at vesting and look at the outcomes from that perspective and then judge it at that point in time? Part of our softening here or part of our journey that we're going on on non-financial measures has also been an acceptance of, of increased use of board discretion. Now, Origin Energy, Oil Search and CBA, Oil Search before it became part of Santos, had old laid out an approach where over a portion of the LTI, which was now going to be deferred shares, there was a board, I'm not sure if they'd call it board discretion, but there was a number of non-financial considerations the board would run through in consideration on vesting date and in the case of CBA on grant date as well as to what proportion of the award should be granted or, or vested. We've become a, more lenient on those in part because I think it starts to get that non-financial measures innovation going. And we're quite willing to wait until vesting to, to make a determination on the appropriateness of those outcomes. I think that's quite a different change to what it used to be. We were always looking for at grant date, tell us what you're looking for over the next three years. But I, I think on the non-financial measures, we've really run into limitations as to what we're expecting there, particularly around corporate culture type issues, which, which was the really a very big takeaway from the Royal Commission into the financial services industry we saw a few years ago. So we're, we're, we've loosened that somewhat. We're a little less prescriptive. So to the extent that that's happening on a portion 
and I, and I mean, on those three examples I, I discussed, mm-hmm. it went up to around 50% of the LTI we've been accepting. If that was to move up to 100% LTI, I, I would think, you know, we'd have to consider the justification put forward, but I would think it would be a pretty tough case to argue at this point. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. You touched on it there briefly, and I am going to ask about that. So corporate culture, do you feel through your engagements, are you are you getting a true insight into corporate culture? Are you able to find your meetings with directors? Are you, are you able to get an insight? Are directors able to explain to you or you know bring evidence of how the culture is working at those companies? So that, or is it you know those sort of things uh, come out in the commission, and then you have to judge it at that point in time? Culture is a, a fascinating subject for me, but it's one of those things that's uh, really interesting. Yeah, it's a tough one because we we do ask about it, and we we ask about two things. We ask for board culture and then we ask employee or or firm culture. And I think the board culture can come through. I think they can come through quite easily. And I know that's quite a different topic, but if I can just touch on that first because it'll explain the challenges with with the second part there. We can tell when a, you know, we're usually engaging with multiple people. We can observe if it's just the chair answering every question or whether the remuneration committee chair will, will, will chime in or, or whether the chair and the remuneration committee will bounce off each other in the meeting. And sometimes that happens as well. So we'll get a sense of, of the interaction between the people that we're actually meeting with, which is usually more than one director. We will then, in terms of asking about other directors on the board or appointment processes, get that sense further as, as the directors sort of communicate amongst themselves and and i'll get a sense of to to what extent do the directors collaborate or to what extent one director might be pulling the weight a little bit more than than others but look typically i'm I'm finding that the directors are bouncing off each other pretty well so I'm, i'm typically not detecting an issue but there's been a couple anecdotes amongst the team here where there's been an engagement and a, we're pretty sure a director is presenting a, a remuneration report that they know that they're at very high risk of getting a strike for. And we have seen the remuneration committee chair effectively remain silent while the chair presents on the remuneration outcomes. So occasionally we've seen things like that happen and we're left wondering, did the chair override the remuneration committee in these decisions or is the chair trying to jump on the potential shareholder dissent grenade on behalf of the the remuneration committee but it, it can be it can be quite interesting but it's also very speculative right yeah. it might just be maybe they take turns between meetings as to, to who, who the primary is you would obviously like to see you know when you're engaging usually engaging with a chair and probably a chair of remuneration committee as part of the AGM process. Would you prefer to see rotation through, obviously those are the two key positions when it comes to an AGM to present the information that's needed for an AGM, but would you prefer to see rotation or a third member come along to the engagements? I mean, that, that could be quite helpful. That would be interesting. I think I get something out of continuity though, meeting the same mm-hmm. people year on year. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw out the current model in, in favor, of rota- favor of rotation at the moment. Yeah, so that, that's how I probably think about that. So on board culture, look, we get a bit of sense because we can see the personalities, you know, used to be sitting on the other side of the table. Now it's sitting on the other side of the Microsoft Teams call. We'll then ask questions about corporate culture, particularly where there's been some airtime on corporate culture. 
So you should read that as we ask financial institutions about it quite a lot, just as we ask materials businesses, miners about what the culture is on the mine sites. And we get, we get different answers. Some seem stronger than others. With re respect to financial institutions, I often express, I'll, I'll list out, the bank's pretty large here, I'll, I'll, I'll list out my belief that it must be difficult to get a sense of culture when your employee count is in the tens of thousands. On, on that, the, the good answers that I've, I've received is that the, the board has a good sense of what the executive are behaving, you know, what, what their culture is. They've got a good sense of what the frontline staff who are dealing with customers are doing but they have a poor sense of, of everything in between in the middle management layers. So I've, I've had that answer, and I thought that was a fantastic answer because it's an honest one. They're clearly giving the positive evaluations in the areas that they can see that they either have direct insight over or the customers are having direct insight over where, and, and are admitting that the, the challenge that uh, they have on, on everything in between. So I, I, I appreciate the honest answers. And I appreciate hearing about when, or, or if I ask about when a, a, a big four bank director walks into a branch, do they get recognized? Do, do, do they do mystery shopping, et cetera, et cetera. And, and typically, to some extent, in, in the sample size of two I've tried, the answer has been there is a little bit of mystery shopping, which is positive. But it's, you know, they're, they're admitting the challenge and evaluating the corporate culture for that. 60% of employees that are sitting between yeah. customer facing and, and, and the executive. So it's tough for me to get that sense as well. Yep. On the mining firms, I've, I've been asking, uh, you know, about the sexual harassment issue that's been getting a bit of play at the moment. And I've been asking, how do the directors know what's going on? And they'll typically give me an answer that they might have visited a few sites and done a walk around. I'm not sure what else I'm asking them to do, but I find that a lot less compelling given if I were a GM or a superintendent or, or whatever at a mine site and I knew the board of directors were going to visit, I'd probably know that two months in advance, giving everyone the pep talk to be on their best behavior. So I'm not entirely convinced by by that answer, but I'm not, I'm, I, I haven't received a great answer that lets me reflect on what a good answer looks like on that one. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept uh, and the responsibility that lies with a board whenever either culture fails or, you know, as, as we've seen with a couple of the recent controversies, you know, the two casinos obviously had very real issues that are playing out in the media. Rio released the, you know, the Everyday Respect report on the back of Jukan Gorge. Accountability at board level for failures at that point. I suppose there's not much you can do other than get an insight at that stage. It can only be when, I suppose, when those failures happen. Would that be fair to say? As such, when those failures, public failures happen, how does that impact, I suppose, a director moving forward, you know, that's been on one of these boards? Yeah, well, that, that is the time when it moves from internal proxy advisor speculation to us writing chapters about it in our reports and making recommendations to protest against these directors once something's actually happened because the challenges on on, on seeing it coming as an outsider are, are, are pretty tough really so we would it, it's case by case as to whether we think a director has failed in their duties to shareholders or failed in their in their governance duties on on oversight or, or, or risk 
on the case of the casinos. Look, STARS report, in, uh, independent uh, inquiry report came out today. So I don't have the full facts there. I've not read the report. But it, if the report reveals that the risk committee or the board had missed red flags that they ought to not have, or at least, you know, in some of this, some of the time, these these inquiries read pretty legalistic and uh, you have to make a normative assessment. We would definitely consider making protest votes at the star board, even though I think the star board is indicating very significant turnover. So that might not be a significant matter for this year's AGM. But to the extent that we see other directors who, who we think missed issues that they shouldn't have, we'd need to consider that in terms of our support for them at, at other companies as well. So it, it's definitely an issue that cross-pollinates. Uh, especially when they're so large and, and, and major. I, I'd add this is really in practice, well, significantly the only uh, issue that we would tend to protest across boards. So while while you, it might seem harsh, while we're hearing from boards that they they don't, you know, they think they're a board colleague is, is a great director and, and whatnot, some of these controversies just become a little bit too much for us to turn a blind eye to as the director performance. That's totally understandable. Moving sort of away from that that side of it and onto the more the ENS side of things, say on climate, obviously Australia seems to have taken the idea that obviously the Children's Investment Fund, you know, came up with around an advisory say on climate at public listed companies and the results in terms of shareholder support for these resolutions is demonstrably lower than international peers. So obviously the Australian investment community feels that this is, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, an issue that they want to have a say on. Whereas internationally, you know, there's a lot of either feeling that it's it may take away from accountability at director level or that it's it's not the right and even vanguard have come out and said they're not not advising issuers to come to have a say on climate until there becomes you know a standard a standard around what the say on climate actually is and what they should what investors should be approving i suppose have you seen that from clients you know are you getting different feedback from domestic clients versus international clients around their expectations yeah, we're, we're getting wildly different views on this, even within domestic clients, but we're also hearing there's an international split as well. Now, you're, you're right, this Woodside Petroleum, I believe, as of today, is still the highest level of progress recorded in a sound climate vote. But you mentioned uh, Australian reports had stuck out. We are dealing with currently a sample size of four. So there's a, there's a little bit of room, a little bit left to play here and then see how, how this evolves over time. But uh, d- domestically, we're expecting another eight or so sound climate votes throughout the year. Now, three of the four I just mentioned were earlier in the year. So that's going to bring us up to, say, 10 or 11 sound climate votes. We've seen 40 sound climate votes around that this year in other AGM seasons internationally. So if you think it's going to be around 11 of 48 or so uh, sand climate votes will be held in Australia, that's a pretty high percentage to be held in Australia, given Australia's a population of, of what, 20, 25 million or so now. Australia's certainly sticking out in terms of popularity for sand climate votes. Now, internationally, we have not seen salmon climate take off really at all in the US. In, North, in Europe, we saw it take off, but it looks like it's moving sideways now in, in 2022, though it's still to be seen how it will play out next year. Uh, Australia seems to be the one that 
it just continues to ramp up on the number of companies undertaking sound climate. And part of that is in, in talking to some of our uh, domestic clients that some super funds and super funder affiliated groups are very pro companies holding these these votes. They think it's a useful tool for shareholders to hold companies accountable for their climate transition progress. They think it's a, a useful tool that I'd like to see even annually to give that consistent feedback as to, to whether they think the company is on the right track. Though we, we hear from other groups, other investors, you know, generally fund managers who do not take that view. They do not take the view that an advisory resolution in general is a particularly good way for governance to flow, as you mentioned. And as they mentioned, voting against directors is the traditional way for shareholders to, to make a protest in, on governance matters. And, and, and they would think that that process was normal. But they also then might add, is this a pattern? If we start with sound climate, do we end up with other say on votes, for instance, say on uh, gender equity, say on modern slavery, say on what, whatever ESG thing you want to put on. Now, given that we're hearing different things from different clients, we, we don't campaign particularly loudly about whether we want to see on sound climate proposals. Generally speaking, Quietly, if asked directly, we will suggest to companies that it's not something that we see as particularly necessary. But as the horse is somewhat bolted here in Australia and we're looking at sound climate votes, of course, we have to engage in them. This is probably a bit of a sideways shift. If director accountability needs to be you know, at the forefront of those investors who want to push for that, is annual director elections then a more, you know, from their perspective, a better way to to judge, you know, you have your, you know, the person responsible for the climate action report or the climate action plan, whatever uh, it is called in the particular case, putting up directors for annual elections. This was spoken about recently at the AXI conference as well, and didn't seem to be any major, I think, you know, objections to annual director elections. It would obviously make your job harder having more <laughs> resolutions to consider every year, but having that responsibility and having that person up for election every year is that a better way because it's binding obviously as opposed to an advisory say on climate i think it would be positive look 95 percent of boards aren't at risk of having one of their directors voted off in, in any given year right it's rarely in the margins I'm, and i mean australia does have some experience with you know everyone's up annually that, that we see it at bhp and rio rio is still dual listed with the uk so they have to bhp was but but have continued with the annual directors and Treasury Wine Estates has voluntarily adopted that approach. I don't see it as a serious issue at all because the, the, the argument for the three-year rotation is, is that there's board stability, that everyone's not going to get voted off in a single year and cause chaos. But I just see that as such an unlikely event in, in any case, or if that event occurs, something very major must have happened that I, I, I really think it will lead to a costly outcome in a insignificant number of cases. So I, I do think it would be an improvement to corporate governance if if, if directors stood for, for election annually. It wouldn't create more work for me, uh, but thank you for your, for your concern there, Brendan. The way we do our analysis is we evaluate the entire board. And if we had an issue, we would then pick from our potential candidates whether or not it was appropriate to cast a protest vote. So in most cases, 
there's no protest to, to be made. So there's really no saving in, in, in terms of, you know, the default is we're supporting directors so that there's not additional work there. Fantastic. I suppose that moves us, you know, say on climate, moves us on. And some, I suppose, yes, it's a small sample size, but in terms of shareholder resolutions that those companies who've had a say on climate seem to have had less support than previously. Even looking back to Woodside this year, they had a lobbying resolution two years ago. They had it and it almost, you know, it had around that 50% support, whereas this year it was around, you know, that 14 is, you know, I, I suppose when you and Courtney or, or the team are looking at the say on climate resolution, is that a consideration when then considering the shareholder resolutions? It definitely is. It definitely is for us. And so I can only imagine it is for others. And as you say, the vote results at Santos and Woodside earlier seem to be indicating that as well, quite strongly, since the sound climate votes carried more climate protests than the shareholder proposals did. In in our analysis, we will specifically mention in the shareholder proposal analysis, if it's a climate change shareholder proposal, there will be some discussion of what the company's doing well, what the company's not doing so well, what um, we would like to see from the company in terms of climate change progress. And then there will be a consideration, does the shareholder proposal enable shareholders to communicate that? Sometimes it does, uh, but there's communication of a lot more than that in terms of specific asks as well. You might want to say, hey, look, I think you need to work on your scope three targets or, or, or whatever it might be, or we think your target setting just needs to be more developed. And there'll be a shared proposal that is to that topic, but also asking for companies to disclose how they're going to wind down the various operations, which we didn't want. To communicate, but if there's a sound climate vote, well, you don't have to make that distinction. You don't have to choose between sending too blunt a message or no message at all. You you can you can send a message directly on the the climate transition plan. So we've found that useful, and that has creeped into our commentary and in our shareholder proposal analysis. Yep. And just for anybody listening, in terms of your engagement with the proponents of, especially the ESG resolutions, the NGOs, such as ACCR and Market Forces, what form does that take and when does uh, it happen for you guys? Do you always seek to engage whenever there is a, a resolution? Do you want to hear both sides of obviously the story? So, you know, we, we've got our engagement policies and processes that we that we work around. And one of probably the key tenets to that is we only want to engage on those topics prior to the release of the notice of meeting. And we also want to engage on that prior to the point where we start having to decline meetings so we can move on to our actual report production. So if a uh, proponent was to lodge a resolution after that point or after the point that we've started to decline engagements, we may decline the engagement. We might grant an exception if, if we think it's of particular use to hold the engagement. But typically, we're looking at their investor briefing notes anyway, so we can we get we get a lot of sense of what their what their views are. Now, look, those are some reasons why you know some some trips for where where, where activists might trip up if they want an engagement but haven't engaged with us before. Since we know market forces and ACCCR are so active in the market, and we expect them to lodge proposals each year, we will reach out to them before our engagement cutoff, asking for a meeting because we've learned lessons before where we've where we might have missed the chance to engage, but think that there's a benefit to do so if we're early enough. Fantastic. 
that's almost everything. The one thing I did want to finally cover off Glassless's RFS service. You know, in the event of a recommendation that you know a company doesn't agree with, wants to put forward a different perspective, can you just talk about that process and how you go about doing that? Sure. Yeah, there's two ways. Look, I'll, I'll address errors up front. If you come across an error in a report, please do report it on on our website. And uh, if it's considered material, we'll we'll republish our report to address the error. I, I have. To say, though, the majority of the time we're hearing from companies, it's not a cut and dry error. There's a difference in, in view or interpretation here. In, in fact, it's usually a material error. I, I don't think with the number of times a material error has been contributing to a recommendation. In, in my four years with Glassdoor, very few. I'm struggling to think of any examples. I won't say it's zero, though. But, you know, if, if Glass-Lewis has a recommendation out there that you fundamentally disagree with and you think the analysis doesn't capture some elements that shareholders should be taking into to account in, in terms of their vote, you can submit a report feedback statement and append that to our uh, research. So to do that, you'd have to be a, a corporate subscriber. You can call up the the, the corporate team here at, at Glass-Lewis. It's nothing to do with me since I'm the independent research guy but they will then walk you through the process on how you can submit that response. Once that response comes through to me or to whoever the lead analyst on your company is, they will review it against certain guidelines and the guidelines will have reference to, there's some politeness elements there. You're not allowed to call the analyst an idiot or something in the paper, but after reviewing that, and I think more or less all RFSs have been approved to date. We will then republish the report, append the RFS to the back of the report, and send a push email out to all uh, Glass-Lewis clients who have downloaded and accessed the report to make sure that they're aware that this new update has occurred. Now, a couple of times that has actually resulted in a republication favorable to the company as well particularly where Glass-Lewis uh, had some lim- saw some limitation in the disclosure of the company, where, where for instance, the board, you know, the, there might be a remuneration structure which is inappropriate in the event that the CEO leaves early, but early departure before vesting is not addressed in a remuneration report. That has previously been a reason for us to oppose an equity grant or similar proposal. Previously, an RFS has actually contained a statement by the board that that was not their attention and and has actually resulted in a change of recommendation. Now, obviously, you're not allowed to put uh, material, undisclosed information, market-sensitive information into an RFS. You need to just, you need to put that into an ASX filing, um, which would be another way to address a Glass-Lewis report, to be honest. But on smaller items where it seems to be a, a an omission of something that's not price-sensitive, we can we can consider. Is there any changes to the actual reports themselves this year? I know Arabesque, is there any inclusion of more ESG on the actual physical report itself? There's, there's the addition of a ESG data page. Our ESG team has started collecting data for the ASX 300, and it will contain a number of data points. Does the company report to SASB? What's its gender equality? This is all wrapped up in one page and, and, and goes up to a, a, a score. That's the only addition I'd, I'd draw people's attention to at the moment thank you so much Philip. that was really interesting i definitely took a lot away from it but thank you again thank you fantastic 
thank you everyone for listening to our first podcast first of many we hope if you want to find out more about alliance advisors or our services please go to our website which is allianceadvisors.com or follow us on linkedin or twitter